Romans 5, 6 through 11 is our text for today. This is the 27th message in a study through the New Testament book of Romans. Romans was written by a missionary. In fact, in part, the book of Romans is a missionary support letter. Paul was raising money in order to go to Spain. Uh, the heart of God is missions. And so I would ask you today to pray, to seek God, to ask yourself, should you yourself become a missionary? Just this week, we heard from another young man in the church who is interested in becoming a missionary. If you are not called to go to the mission field, I would say that you must be about the business of sending others to the mission field. Today's message is entitled, Because He First Loved Me, and it is 30 handwritten pages. Today, I would like you to turn in your Bibles to Romans chapter 5. As you are turning, please remember that God loves you, and listen as I read Romans chapter 5, verses 6 through 11. Hear the word of the Lord. But while we were still weak... At the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. For one will scarcely die for a righteous person, though perhaps for a good person, one would even dare to die. But God shows his love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Since, therefore, we have now been justified by his blood, much more shall we be saved by him from the wrath of God. For if while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God by the death of his son, much more. Now that we are reconciled, we shall be saved by his life. More than that, we also rejoice in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have now received reconciliation. Our Father in heaven, we want to thank you that you love us. We want to thank you that you have told us that you love us. Now today, Lord, we want to understand more of what that love is. And so, Lord, give us the concentration to rivet our attention to your word. And Lord, by your spirit, please speak to us so that we will not only understand what the love of God is, but Lord, I pray that we will experience it today in Christ, in whose name we pray. Amen. Amen. I have two points today. Point number one is, that makes no sense. And point number two is, that makes perfect sense. Uh, let's review what we have covered so far in the book of Romans. Chapters one through four is Paul spelling out, essentially, that we are saved by faith alone, in Christ alone, apart from good works. That's the first section of the book of Romans. The second section of the book of Romans is where we find ourselves right now. That is chapters 5 through 8. And in this section, it is a description of what your life looks like after you have become saved. Uh, last week, we learned that the Christian has the hope of heaven. And it's not an empty hope. It is not a mirage. It is not a Ponzi scheme. It is a sure hope a hope that will not disappoint, a hope that will not put us to shame. And the reason that this is true is because God the Holy Spirit, the third person of the Trinity, has, has poured out God's love in our hearts. In other words, we sense, we 
feel we experience God's love in our hearts. And that is a kind gift from God that he gives to every born-again believer. But that begs the question, and that is, does the subjective feeling of the love of God, which I have in my heart, have a basis? Is there an objective reality to vindicate my subjective feelings or experience? And the text today is going to answer that. And in verses 6 through 11, Paul is going to say, yes, absolutely, it does have a basis in reality. There is a basis for the love which we feel in our hearts. It is based upon objective facts. But for starters, we need to learn, and this is point number one, that this basis is counterintuitive. It goes against the way that we normally think and reason. In other words, point number one, that makes no sense. This is verses 6 through 8. That makes no sense. Not that it is nonsensical and not that it is illogical and not that it contradicts sound reason, but when I say that makes no sense, it means that when we match what is being told to us in verses 6 through 8 with our normal customary way of thinking, it does not match up. Again, verses 6 through 8. For while we were still weak, at the right time Christ died for the ungodly. For one will scarcely die for a righteous person, though perhaps for a good person one would dare even to die. But God shows his love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. That makes no sense. First of all, it makes no sense because notice what the text says about us. What do these verses say about who we are? In verse 6, it says that we are both weak and ungodly. And in verse 8, it says that we are sinners. And then in verse 10, it's going to say that we are enemies. Every description of us is bad. It is not inaccurate. It's not an exaggeration. It's just bad. We are bad. In verse 6, it says that we are weak. This refers to moral weakness or spiritual inability. Why is it that we do not love God with all of our hearts? Because we know that we should, but why is it that we don't? It is because we are weak. Why is it that we keep falling back into sin? It is because we are weak. Why is it that we love the things of this world more than we love God? It is because we are weak. There is a moral inability. We are weak. And then in verse 6, it also says that we are ungodly. We are weak and ungodly. Ungodly means godless, uh, uh, without God. Uh, left to ourselves, we do not think about God. Left to ourselves, we would not want to imitate God. We do not seek after God. Our entire existence, our worldview, our priorities, our decisions, they are ungodly. They are apart from God. God did not get an invitation to the party. We are ungodly. And then in verse 8, it says that we are weak, ungodly sinners. That we are sinners. Literally, that we miss the mark those who fall short. Sin is an archery term. And to sin means to be off target. We sin by nature. We sin by choice. 
1 John 3, 4 says that sin is lawlessness. Sin is God saying, I want you to do this, and it is us saying to God, I do not like your rules. In fact, I don't even like you. So we are sinners. All have sinned. Verse 10 says that we are weak, ungodly sinners who are enemies of God. It's not just that we lack the credentials to get into heaven. It's not just that God is saying, I'm sorry, I would love to let you into my heaven, but because I am holy and because you don't meet up to my standards, therefore you don't uh, get entrance into my heaven. I would love to help you out, but I really can't. I'm sorry, um, but let's let there be no hard feelings. No, this says that God is our natural enemy. We cannot stand him, not as he really is. Now, please understand, there are notions of God, which are him being a sentimental, grandfatherly-like figure, uh, which we have invented in our minds. Well, we do love that God, but he is not the true and living God. He is an idol. He does not exist. Uh, this God, small g, that we have invented or that we have created doesn't have any laws, he doesn't have any expectations, and he certainly isn't ever going to do anything bad to you, and most certainly he's not going to do anything bad to you in eternity. He's not expecting anything from you. He loves everybody. He loves everybody equally. He loves everybody unconditionally. The only problem is... He is like the Easter bunny. He doesn't really exist. The true and living God, the God of the Bible, is a God that we are at war with. Unsaved people hate God, and God hates them. You see, the actual true and living God is our enemy. We want him to shut up. We want him to go away. We want him to stop telling us what to do, and we wish that he was dead. Romans 8, 7. The mind that is set on the flesh is hostile to God. But it's not a one-sided war. It's not just that we hate him, but he feels indignation toward us every day. Psalm seven eleven, or as it says in the King James Version, he is angry with the wicked every day. And as it says in Psalm 5, 5, God hates all evildoers. Not just that he hates what they do. He does hate what they do, but he hates them. God hates all evildoers. Uh, even our text today in verse 9 speaks about the wrath of God. Man and God are at war. We are enemies. And Romans chapter 5, verses 6 through 11, says that weak, ungodly, sinful enemies of God have experienced his love. Now, I would ask before we get on to the love of God, does Paul have any idea what he is doing right here? Does he have any idea how potentially insulting this could be? Uh, does he not understand that you catch more flies with honey than you do with vinegar? Does Paul not know that he has just used four different words to say four really bad things about us? Of course Paul understands that. That is intentional on his part. And there is no ambiguity. Those who are being talked about, those who are being described in Romans chapter 5, verses 6 through 11, 
are bad people. They are people who are in trouble. They are people who are in trouble with God. This is a description of me. This is a description of you. Describes all of us. Romans 3.23, for all have sinned. Romans 3.10, there's nobody who understands. There's nobody who seeks after God. There is none righteous. No, not one. So if you're keeping score and if you're paying attention and if you remember that the heading so far is that makes no sense, let me just say that everything that I've said up to this point does indeed make sense. This does make sense. You can look at the Bible. You can look at your life. You can compare the two things together. You look at your heart. You can look at the Bible. You can understand that this does make sense. This does add up. You are bad. You are very bad, and I am very, very bad. This does so far make sense. But what follows is the part that doesn't make sense. What doesn't make sense is that he loves us. You see, if we were following a normal way of thinking, a logic which makes sense, we would read these descriptions of ourselves, and then it would say, and as such, you are all going to hell. That adds up. If he did that, every mouth would be stopped with no defense, and all the world would be guilty before God. No defense, no discussion. That would make sense. But what Paul writes in verses 6 through 8 is not in line with conventional wisdom. It is counterintuitive. It does not match up with what we see in the world. It is more than just upside down. It is otherworldly. So, following the bigger argument, how do I know that my hope will not disappoint or will not put me to shame? Well, objectively, you know it based upon what God did and when he did it. Notice the when, first of all, in verse 6. For while we were still weak at the right time. While we were still weak at the right time. The right time does not refer to some sort of fulfillment of a prophetic calendar, like matching up with the 70 weeks of Daniel. Nor does the right time mean in the fullness of time uh in the incarnation, such as is described in Galatians 4.4. But when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his son, born of a woman, born under the law. Now let me be clear. Historically, did Christ did indeed arrive at the right time, according to the prophetic calendar, into a world which was ripe and ready for the Messiah and the spread of the gospel. It was, according to Galatians 4.4, at the right time. I'm not saying it was the wrong time. It was the right time, but that is not Paul's point here. His point in Romans 5.6 is that at the time, in our hideously weakened state, when we needed him the most, that is the time that he came and saved us when we needed it the most. And notice who it is that saves us. It is Christ. It doesn't say Jesus, although Jesus is Christ. Paul uses the word Christ. Messiah is the one that did this. Christ did this. Christ died. 
That is that he was crucified and he bore the wrath of God on the cross for, and that word for is the most important word in the entire text, for. It means in place of, as, as, as our substitute, the just for the unjust, or as was read earlier, he who knew no sin became sin for us so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. At the right time, here we go, Christ died for the sincere. Christ died for the seeker. Christ died for the penitent. Christ died for the religious. Christ died for the appreciative. Now, if that's what it said, then it would compute. It would start to make sense. But that is not what it says. What it says is, Christ died in place of the ones who wanted nothing to do with him or his father. He died for the godless. He died for the ungodly. He died for the atheist. He died for the ungodly. Christ died for the ungodly. We hear this so often. I'm afraid that, I'm afraid that we perhaps have become jaded and, and it loses its intent. I think, I think we, we, we just throw the phrase out, Christ died for the ungodly. It is a true phrase. But in context, that phrase is intended to shock us. And I think it loses its sting when we don't meditate upon it. Of course Christ died for the ungodly. We're Christians. That's what we believe. No, no, no. Slow down just a little bit. Here's the big deal. The big deal is that nothing, and I mean nothing, I mean absolutely nothing else in the entire universe works this way. It makes no sense whatsoever. And it is intended, this message is intended to shock you. This isn't grace. This is amazing grace. This is, this is baffling grace. This is nonsensical grace. This is, what are you talking about, grace? And in order to drive home his point, Paul uses language which is counterintuitive to the way everything else works in the world. But please don't breeze over verse 6 until it marinates in your soul. Until you can, with sincerity, sing, I stand amazed in the presence of Jesus the Nazarene and wonder how he could love me, a sinner condemned unclean. How marvelous, how wonderful, I am in shock and awe. That's what Paul is trying to do here. And, and, and in order to drive his point home, what Paul does in verse seven is he spells out something which does make sense to everyone. And that is that life is precious and that your life is very precious. And as such, you are not going to sacrifice it for just anybody. Uh, uh, Paul goes from verse six, which is, which is just, mind-boggling to verse 7 to something which, okay, I can relate to this. And notice what he says in verse 7. This is the way the world works. For one will scarcely die for a righteous person, though perhaps for a good person, one would 
even would dare even to die. Now, there's some debate as to whether or not there's any difference between a righteous person and a good man. Um, I would say, yes, there is a difference. There is a slight difference, but it makes no difference in the logic of the verse nor in the flow of the argument. What he's saying here is it is universally understood and instinctive in all cultures at all time, and it is true among all people, that self-preservation is a high priority. And so it's rare that you're going to, as you're driving up to North Shore Baptist Church, it is rare that you are going to find a parking spot in front of the church on a Sunday morning. But Paul is saying it is even more rare that you would find someone who will volunteer to die in place of a righteous man, one who is a law keeper, one who is good, one who is upright. Just doesn't happen very often that someone will die for someone else, even if that person is righteous. But Paul says every once in a while, you're going to see this, this news story. And, 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 and it's going to be hmm, not that often, but every once in a while, you'll find someone who is willing to jump onto the tracks with an oncoming train and, and, and try to pull someone up off of the tracks. Every once in a while, you'll find someone who is willing to dare to die for a good man. Every once in a while, you will read the story of someone who will fall on the hand grenade. They will do it because that person is good, because they love them. I, I, I will run into the burning building. I might die. In fact, I will probably die, but it's worth it. And the reason it's worth it is because the person that I'm going in after is good. That happens, Paul says, but it doesn't happen very often. And here's the key. And when it does happen, it is for someone who is righteous or good, someone who is deserving. It's rare, understandably rare, the reason that it's rare is because all of us want to survive. We all understand self-preservation. But when it does happen, it does make sense because the person who is being rescued is in some way perceived to be worthy. That is the way people in all cultures from all time think and to act with respect to self-preservation and self-sacrifice. But now when we get to verse 8, Paul says the same thing that he said in verse 6. He just uses a thesaurus and he uses some different words, but it is the same point. And now he goes back to being ridiculous again. Verse 8. Let's go through it slowly. But, by contrast, but contrary to the way that we normally would think, but God shows his love or God demonstrates his love. He doesn't just talk about his love. He gives us a public demonstration of his love. How? Mind-boggling. In that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. That makes no sense. And Paul knows that that makes no sense. 
because there's not a living human being who would come up with an exchange like that. There's no movie that would accept a script or a storyline like that. You can't even make this stuff up. Now, some people might try to say, yeah, that that calculates. They might say, yes, what God did when he sent Christ to die for us, he saw our potential, and so he viewed us as a good investment. He knew that we were sort of diamonds in the rough, and so he purchased us when we were a mess, kind of like an underdeveloped piece of land, knowing that one day we would shine and it would be worth his while. That simply is not true, because remember, we are weak and we are ungodly and we are sinners and we are enemies he, he he didn't do it because he saw that that would be a wise investment his love for weak ungodly sinners is intended to baffle you this is not intended to make sense God did not wish nor design for his love to be calculated and fathomed and to line up with our logic and our experience. God says, watch this. And he gives a demonstration. And the demonstration was unlike anything the world has ever known. It was a demonstration of love for those who hated him, his enemies. I sometimes feel bad, and I, I, I will confess this to you. I never, I never say it out loud when it's happening, but, but I sometimes feel bad when I am watching a football game and the team that we are playing against has a very good player, and at the end of the play, that player is still on the ground. And I'm thinking to myself, in, in all honesty, I hope he's not going to be permanently disfigured, but I am fine with him for the next two hours having that joint swell up so that he does not re-enter the game. He is my enemy, and I'm rejoicing when he's banged up a little bit. That's how evil your pastor is. And so, yes, when he walks off the field, I will, okay, I hope you get better tomorrow. I hope you get better tomorrow. The demonstration that God gives toward his enemies is not feeding them or giving them a scholarship or giving them a night's lodging. It was human sacrifice. It was him killing his son for these weak, ungodly, sinful enemies. Not just letting his son be killed, but God himself killing his son for his enemies wasn't the Romans ultimately or even the Jews ultimately who killed Christ. That was the instrument that was used, but, but it was God the Father who killed Christ the Son. Isaiah 5.10, the Lord makes his life an offering for sin. You understand what's happening at the cross, right? Jesus is pure and he is holy. But when he is nailed to that cross, he becomes a curse. And in becoming a curse, he takes our sin. And now God, who is holy, must punish sin. And so what God does for six hours is he tortures his son. He, he, he puts his son to grief and agony. God kills his son. God puts his son to death upon the cross. That, that's what happens. The just for the unjust. 
And notice, it was not a quick death. It was not a bullet to the head. It wasn't a, it wasn't a guillotine. It was six hours of torture. And it wasn't just physical agony, but it was God's unbridled wrath upon the soul of Christ. So mothers and fathers, I want to talk to you for a second. What if I told you that you have an opportunity to save the life of your best friend? In fact, if you don't act upon this, your best friend is going to die. But I'm giving you an offer right now. You can save the life of your best friend. Here's what you need to do in order to save the life of your best friend. You need to come up right now with your child here in public With your own hands, you need to brutally kill your son or your daughter in front of us all right now in a torturous, shameful manner. And if you do that, then you can save the life of your best friend. Is there anyone who would do that? I would not. My best friend would have to die. I would not sacrifice my sons or my daughters, any one of them, for all of my friends. Now what if I made you another deal? Only this time, I want you to bring that same child up here, and I still want you to kill them. And I still want it to be shameful. I still want it to be public. I still want it to be torturous. But you're doing it in order to save the life of Adolf Hitler. So just go over to the nursery right now, pick the baby up, come up here. I have the power to do this. Hitler lives, your child dies. Now don't confuse the analogy. I'm not saying that Christ died for Hitler. I'm not saying that when Holy God looks at you in your weak, ungodly, sinful state, you are filthier than Hitler. I'm not saying that at all. What I'm saying is this. You are worse than Hitler in that the gap between... God and you is morally larger and greater than the gap between you and Hitler. Hitler is below you, but the gap between you and Hitler is smaller than the gap between you and holy, infinite God. So now back to the analogy. Can you kill your child publicly so that Hitler will go free? Why even ask the question? That makes no sense whatsoever. Yes, that's the point. It makes no sense whatsoever. What makes sense is that we love our children. But God shows. God demonstrates publicly. His love for sinners in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Hopefully, 
that has caused you to scratch your head in bewilderment. Hopefully, it causes more than just bewilderment. Prayerfully, I pray that this opens your eyes to see the love of God and that it would cause you to love Him. Oh, how I love Jesus. Oh, how I love Jesus. Oh, how I love Jesus. Why? Because He first loved me. Because He first loved me. Because He first loved me. What will it take for you to love God? Like, would you like Him to do something else for you? Would you like, would, do you need something additional from Him? What else would you like Him to do in order to demonstrate His love for you? What would you like? You see, I think the greatest proof in all the world of your total depravity and your deservedness of an eternal hell is that you can coldly reject and walk away from a God who would publicly kill His sinless Son in your place so that you can be saved and go free. If you can do that, hopefully you will understand a little bit better why you should be in hell. Your lies, they're really bad. Your adultery, that, that has gotten you and a lot of other people into a mess. Your fornication, it's just wrong. It's bad. Your stealing, you, you, sh you shouldn't do that. Your cursing, your blasphemy, that, that is so bad. But the most wicked thing that you do it's not your stealing or your adultery. It is that you coldly reject the God who loves you as demonstrated in the giving of His own Son for sinners. Now, nothing in verses 6 through 8 makes any sense to me. It's not supposed to make any sense to me. It is to cause us to stand in awe of God's love. But now as we move into verses 9 through 11, well, this makes perfect sense. Point number two, that makes perfect sense. What we have in verses 9 and 10 are two identical parallel arguments. The logic of both of these move from the greater to the lesser. Let me illustrate what a greater to lesser argument is. Today, the New York City Marathon is being run. Everybody who finishes is going to have run 26.2188 miles. And let's just say that I were to meet one of these marathon runners and I would say to this marathon runner, hey, would you like to go for a jog with me some morning around the neighborhood? And they say, yes, I would love that. And I say to them, well, before you commit, I think you need to count the cost. Because you need to understand that this path that I have marked out is a three-mile path. I just want to make sure you're going to be able to do that. To which they would say, yes, yes, I, I can do that. And I'll tell you why I know that I can do that. Since I can run 26 miles, which is the greater, I know that I can run three miles, which is the lesser. Notice the argument from the greater to the lesser. In verse 9, there is a greater to lesser argument, and here it is. Since, therefore, we've now been justified by his blood, much more shall we be saved by him from the wrath of God. Uh, since, therefore, we have now been justified by his blood. In other words, since 
we have already been declared righteous by God in the here and now based upon the blood sacrifice of Jesus. That is the greater, that is the bigger, that is the marathon. Then he moves on to the lesser, much more, because it's a lot easier, much more shall we be saved. That is future salvation at the final judgment. That is the lesser, that is the three-mile run by him, that is by Jesus, from the wrath of God or from hell. In other words, since God justified us now in our weak, ungodly, sinful state as enemies through Christ's death, then it's going to be much easier in the final judgment for us since we who have already been justified are going to quite easily escape the wrath of God at the final judgment. Why? Because we are justified. When God saves us, He saves us from Himself. It is from His wrath. God the Father sets forth His Son as a propitiation that is an atoning sacrifice or an appeasement of His wrath. God the Father sets forth His Son at the cross and there God's wrath was fully spent and His anger was fully satisfied and those who believe are justified and they are declared righteous right now and they will be forever, eternally declared righteous after the final judgment. And since this is true, that we have been justified in the here and now, we have a sure hope of getting through the final judgment on the final day. God's wrath can't touch you because Jesus absorbed it all. This helps me a lot. This really helps me a lot. For much of my Christian life, I have feared the judgment. I, 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 I read this, I study this, and it removes fear of the final judgment. Therefore, there is no need to fear the final judgment. Now that makes perfect sense to me, as does verse 10, which is the same argument, but with different words. Uh, verse 10. For if while we were weak and ungodly and sinful enemies, we were reconciled to God by the death of His Son. All right, stop right there. What does it mean to reconcile? Earlier today, we read about reconciliation from 2 Corinthians chapter 5, which is the quintessential passage on reconciliation. What reconciliation means is to take two parties who are enemies and to turn them into friends. It's not a truce, it's not an armistice, it's not a ceasefire, it's not you go your way and I'll go mine. It's not just a cessation of hostility, but it is a cessation of hostility turning into the two parties becoming friends. That's what reconciliation is. Taking enemies and turning them into friends. So the question in verse 10 that we need to ask before we start to take it apart is, were we reconciled to God by the death of His Son? And the answer is yes. Verse 9 says that we were justified. Verse 10 says that we were reconciled. Justified is courtroom language. Reconciled, and I'm not trying to be, be cute or trite, but reconciled is playground language, where two are enemies, and then 
They become friends. They were fighting a few minutes ago and now they are playing together. They hated one another and now they love one another. There is a relational turning from hostility into love. And since it is true, the greater, that is that we were reconciled when we were justified, that's the marathon, much more now, now that we are currently reconciled made friends with God in the here and now, does it not stand to reason? Does it not make sense? Does it not make perfect sense that we can run that three-mile track around my neighborhood? Much more shall we be saved by His life, saved through the final judgment by the life of Christ. What does it mean, His life? It means His resurrected life, His current mediatorial work as our living high priest or as it said in romans 4 25 he was raised for our justification see jesus didn't just die for your sins and pay for them although he did die for your sins and pay for them but he rose and he is alive today and he himself will personally stand with you through the judgment into full and final salvation in other words if he reconciled you to God, like if he turned you from an enemy into a friend, does it not stand to reason? Does it not make perfect sense that when you stand before God on the final day, that Jesus will be right there, his life, he will be right there, and he will see you through that judgment into eternal life in heaven. That makes perfect sense to me. Do you see the airtight argument of these two verses? If he justified and reconciled us in the here and now by the death of Christ, therefore, we who are currently in a justified and reconciled state, in those justified and reconciled states, we will enter into the final judgment. And when we get there, there is no need to fear. He will save us from eternal wrath and he will grant us eternal life. That makes perfect sense to me but it needs to do more than just make sense. It needs to ignite something in our hearts. This is not something for you to process in your mind and say, hmm, I see what you're saying. This is supposed to do something in our hearts, which is exactly what verse 11 says. Verse 11. More than that, we also rejoice. Rejoice. Rejoice in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have now currently received reconciliation. He keeps employing this much more phrase. Here's what Paul is saying about these gospel truths. These gospel truths ought to amplify, it ought to amp up your heart of love and praise and worship more fervently. Paul ends this argument in verse 11 the same way that he began it back in verse 1. Remember what he said back in chapter 5, verse 1? We have peace with God. What does he say in verse 11? We have now received reconciliation. Do you know what reconciliation is? It is peace with God. And when this reality is processed in our minds, it causes us to rejoice in God through our Lord Jesus Christ. It makes perfect sense to rejoice in the light of our glorious salvation. In fact, it makes no sense whatsoever not to rejoice. By that I mean 
when Dan says, will you stand and now let's lift our voices in song. And as you are looking at the screen, you are either motionless with your lips or you are a ventriloquist barely moving your lips and the look on your face is somewhat bored for the most part catatonic and you are praising God the God who saved you from hell the God who gave up his son for his enemies and you were his enemy for you when we are singing to be singing oh how I love Jesus oh how I love Jesus because he first loved me. That does not make sense. That does not make sense. How can it be that someone who by nature was weak and ungodly and sinful and an enemy of God, and then this person hears the gospel that Jesus died for our sins and he rose again, and then they believe and they are justified, and then they have peace with God, and then they obtain access into that grace in which they stand and 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 then they and then they process the fact that we have hope in the glory of God and then they understand the design of that suffering that it brings about endurance and character and, and then they come to hope in a sense of love which is given from the holy spirit the love of god which they have in their hearts and then they realize that Christ died for them and they realize that God loves them and that they will be saved from wrath and that they will be reconciled and that they will be eternally with the Son of God who loves them. They get all that. They understand that. Does it make any sense that this person then would not rejoice in God through our Lord Jesus Christ? It makes no sense whatsoever. If someone knows that, it only makes sense that they would praise God enthusiastically, that they would rejoice. Now, if you do not rejoice, it means one of two things. One, it means that you are not paying attention. You, you, you don't know what's going on here. You have forgotten, and, and, and I'm glad that you came to church today, because there are things that you need to be reminded of concerning what we possess as the children of God. You need to be reminded of what we have, and when you are reminded, I am certain that you will rejoice. Or it means you do not rejoice simply because you only intellectually under the, understand these things, but you have never experienced these realities in your heart and life. You were never actually justified. You just sort of know what it means. You were never actually reconciled to God. You only know what it means uh, uh, theologically and so forth. In other words, if you have experienced the gospel benefits of Romans 5, 1 through 10, then it makes perfect sense that you would do all that you could to rejoice as vigorously as possible. And so in light of this, if you are not rejoicing, something then is wrong. It doesn't make sense that you would not be rejoicing daily with a glad heart. Application. I have four of them. They will come very quickly. Number one, remember who you were. This is not your current standing before God, but before you were saved, you were an object of wrath just like the others. Remember that apart from Christ, you were acting 
as a wicked person because you are a wicked person. And you need to remember this, seeing yourself as unworthy and vile and undone and wretched. For if you remember this, then that will amplify the beauty of God's love. Don't ever forget who you were. The glory of His love is that for His enemies. Remember that you were one of those enemies before you were saved. Don't ever forget that. Number two, love God with all of your heart. That is the first and greatest commandment. It is fitting that you would love God. Uh, Number three, are you saved? Then brothers and sisters, do not fear the judgment. If He justified you and reconciled you in the here and now, in your unconverted state, He is not going to abandon you on the final day. And number four, rejoice. Rejoice. Sing with all your heart. Speak with your lips of the glorious love of God. And do it as much as you can. It makes perfect sense that you would be glad and happy in Jesus and that you would express it with passion. Whether that is with your words or with uplifted hands or with clapping or with just a smile on your face, let all that is within me bless His holy name. Forget not all His benefits. Let all that is within me bless His holy name. Let His praise be continually upon your lips at all time because He is worthy. But more than that, here we go, because He loves you. And remember, I said at the outset of the sermon, you are to be thinking during the sermon about the fact that He loves you. Were you able to remember that? Do you sense that right now? Dear children of God, He loves you. May that never make sense to us. And therefore, rejoice. All right. 128 down, 305 to go, which means what? Oh, it means we're getting there. Slowly, but we're getting there. Um, Father in heaven, we love you because you first loved us. Now, Lord, if there's anybody here today that does not love you, I pray that through this gospel you would melt their heart and by your Spirit that you would breathe life into them and cause them to know that you love them. Lord, in response, I pray that they would believe and come to love you. Uh, Lord, those of us that just needed a reminder today of, of, of your love, well, Father, I pray that it would be something that we would never forget. Thank you, Lord, that we have today been reminded and may this cause us in turn to love you more than we ever have. This we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.